This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, and welcome to Past Perfect. I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to CEU Medieval Radio Show on Medieval and Early Modern History and Culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're joined today by Dr. Rubina Raja. Dr. Raja is a professor of classical archaeology at the Department of Culture and Society in the Section for Classical Archaeology at Aarhus University in Denmark. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me here. Pleasure. Well, good. You have quite the resume and lots of research interests that I find very interesting, but um, one of the main threads that runs throughout um, a lot of your research is the topic of identity. This is something I'm curious about myself. What do archaeologists mean when they talk about something like identity? Well, I think a lot of people in general do not know what they mean when they talk about identity. Fair enough. Archaeologists included, and that's also why I make an effort to specify what sort of identity we're talking about I in see. a particular setting. Okay. Um, well, my book, which you might be referring to, the Urban Development and Regional Identity book, talks about regional identity as identity in more local settings and not global or imperial settings as I the see. Roman Empire. So how to interact in not necessarily a close community, but on a regional scale and not an in imperial or an empire based. So one city saying, we are city X and we're awesome, and their neighboring city saying, we are city Z and we're more awesome than city X, that sort of thing? Well, uh, th yes, that sort of thing you could be talking about, well knowing that it wasn't societies who set their agenda, but really individuals who shaped societies. And when we can get at the individuals, of course, that gets us to a different level. But as an individual, you still want to play into the local or regional identity, as well as in some cases the more global or Roman imperial identity, which is the period that I study. But I do think that identity, of course, has been a trend in mm -hmm. archaeology to work with. There sure. was <laughs> decades where everybody had identity in all titles and whatever. So, of course, it's also a reflection of ways to approach certain problematics. Well, um, and, and oftentimes there were identities created based off of very fragmentary evidence. I'm thinking of beaker culture, that sort of yeah. uh, thing where an entire ethnicity was given to a group yeah. of people based off of a few potsherds or some very nice-looking brooches and things like that. Getting back to what you were saying earlier about the local versus imperial and Roman, this is something I'm really interested in because whenever someone talks about a Roman building or a Roman temple or a Roman X, Y, and Z, usually there's a very clear image in our mind of what it means for something to be Roman. How does that play out at the local level? Would you mind giving a few examples? Yeah, no, no, of course not. Uh, well, I guess we have to start with the terminology. Okay. Um, <laughs> Roman. Well, what does that mean? It's just a specification of a period in mm -hmm. principle. And when we talk about Roman architecture, we basically talk about architecture within the Roman Empire from the Roman period. And we also more specifically talk about certain sorts of building types that were particularly popular in the Roman period. Mm -hmm. So the theater, you, you mentioned the temple, the basilica mm -hmm. as a civic building, all these sorts of buildings that we would find in almost 
any Roman, and I say that in quotation yes. marks, city <laughs> of the Roman Empire. But it's also a term that's very opposed to the Greek term, so Greek architecture. Well, that's the terminology side sure, of sure, it. Sure, sure. Yes. So when we talk about Roman architecture, we talk about these building types, which we see replicated in all these cities. And you could basically go anywhere and you would find Roman-type temples, which in principle basically means a frontal temple placed on a high podium with a central staircase leading to the temple. Mm -hmm. So that's basically a Roman temple. The thing is that when you get outside of Rome and you do not need to get that far, you would have very local versions of these buildings and being shaped to fit local ritual needs. Mm. And they could look quite differently, both on the inside, but particularly on the outside also. But they would still be termed by us as Roman temples. But whether or not that was what the local people really called them, I mean, that's more of a, of a tricky question. What sort of rituals, if you don't mind me asking, would there need to be like an actual change in space to accommodate? See, this is another uh, quite tricky question because it okay. raises the question of architectural functional analysis, oh, fair enough. Okay. which is something that I find a very hard way of accessing. I mean, you can't always say that form follows function. No, no. But what we do know, I mean, for example, from the Near East, we have a certain amount of temples from the Roman period where the editon, so the holiest, the back part of the temple is not one open space, but it's divided into three. Mm-hmm. And we know in some cases that there were triads being worshipped in these temples. So a tripartite editon would be an indication of this, perhaps. Okay, I see. But perhaps a tripartite editon would, in other cases, just be an indication of the priests keeping cult vessels in the rooms adjoining the editon. So, Mm. I mean, this is where functional analysis becomes a little bit difficult. Another instance is staircases built into the temples, which give access to uh, rooftops, perhaps. And as we know from Mesopotamian and Assyrian religion, rooftop rituals was something that was very common and undertaken. But whether or not this continued also in the more western part of the Near East in the Roman period, we actually do not have any sources for this, but we still find these staircases. But they might just be an indication of a practical need to get to the roof and be able to repair it once in a while. I mean, that's that's another take on it. Very, very fascinating example, I must say. I'm going to ask a question that you'll probably hate. <laughs> how is identity created? That depends on how you look at identity. We have to be aware that we are pushing these terms upon dead societies, which we do have no direct access to. So I'm not sure that we can really, from an ancient point of view, explain how identity was created. We can look at certain identities like civic identities, religious identities, Mm -hmm. regional identities, and we can try to reconstruct how they were created through archaeological material combined with historical and epigraphic sources. Mm -hmm. But whether this was really the case is another matter. But I would argue that in some cases we do get close to trends in how to create uh, especially self-representation within society. 
self-representation as an individual, as a group of people, as a particular group of people? Well, here we can both talk about groups or individuals. I mean, that depends on the situation, of course. Mm -hmm. Lately, I have been working mostly on individual identity. I'm the co-director of an ERC advanced grant project together with Professor Jörg Rücke, based at Erfurt University. And it's a project called Lived Ancient Religion, where we try to question the whole paradigm of the polis religion and look at Roman religion from the individual's perspective. So we're looking for evidence that goes, well, the bottom-up approach where we look for the individual in religion and not religion as an overall concept already created and basically finished, shaped, and something you just buy into, but how individuals shape their religious experience, their way of perceiving religion or living religion. I think the bottom-up approach is really, it's high time, and I think it's a really, really good issue. And my question is, um, what sort of evidence are you having to work with? Is it like um, burials where, you know, it's a presumably Roman girl who has like an Egyptian Mm. cat or something? Or what sorts of evidence mm. are you are you dealing with? Well, we are obviously a group of people working on our different sub-projects, mm-hmm. but trying to pull this together. I have, in particular, been working on religious festivals, access mm-hmm. um, of individuals to sanctuaries. Mm-hmm. This is, of course, also complex because in a lot of cases we only have evidence for groups, but the few places where we do have evidence of how individuals would buy into these experiences or not provide us with one um, line of access. We have a postdoctoral student working on material from domestic settings, which Mm -hmm. I in particular find very interesting. So from Roman Karanis, um, there's a lot of interesting material from domestic settings from the Roman period, which could give a completely new perspective, among other things, with what is the difference on a toy and an amulet that a child would carry. And sometimes it turns out, Lara Weiss has proven this in her research, that you can't tell the difference. So so the ways that objects can change meaning in situations is one line of access, but it, of course, demands that you have quite a good archaeological context. Because objects out of context does not always tell us very much about what they were in fact used for. The question I have in terms of whether or not something is a child's toy or an amulet of protection, Mm. I'm kind of wondering if people in the society saw a difference necessarily. Mm. For some objects, obviously, it might be the case, but for others, I mean, they could have easily operated within both spheres. Yeah, I completely agree on that. And this transferable meaning Mm -hmm. according to a specific context is, is, is very important to realize that multifunctionality is is something that we don't always take as seriously as it should be taken. It's very nice being able to say this is an object type and it served functions X, Y, and Z. And when the reality of the situation is you even have things like reuse where an object may have started out as, you know, um, I don't know, a wooden spoon or something like that. I know that in the Middle Ages we have the relics of the saints where you have all sorts of relics. I mean, the shoes of St. Um, John of Capistran are preserved at an Austrian monastery, and very ordinary things are all of a sudden transformed into holy objects of devotion, mm. um, although that's more of a medieval thing than a... Yeah, but it plays well into the conceptualization of transferable meanings um, and to sort of try to be concrete and and come back to this domestic setting then Mm -hmm. then when you think about how children play nowadays also 
you will have these narratives in kids' stories going on, like now we play that we are doing this, so now mm -hmm. you are this and this, mm -hmm. or this thing is going to become my doll, even though it's yeah. only a wooden spoon. And it yes. is. So the narrative is a very convincing setting for transferring meaning on objects mm -hmm. in various settings is, is something that is still, of course, extremely difficult to get at in archaeological material, but with the right setting and the right evidence, sometimes it is possible. And I think it's worth looking yes. for those contexts. And I think not just with archaeology, but with all disciplines studying the past, asking new questions is always a rewarding activity. We've had a very good chat in the first section about issues of identity, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about urban aspects um, related to uh, this research. Starting with a very general question, um, what sort of cities are you looking at in your research? In my book, I looked at four case studies uh, from the Eastern Roman broadly speaking empire. So I looked at, at Athens to get a, a view of a cultural and very important city. Athens also. in the Roman period? Yeah, Athens in the Roman okay, period. Good. But, but on the backdrop of being a very important cultural um, city, of course, for, for the whole uh, Greek and classical Absolutely. period. But in the Roman period, losing some of that importance, at least politically, not ever becoming a provincial capital, for example. Mm -hmm. um, I looked at uh, Ephesus, okay. a metropolis of Asia Minor. I looked at Aphrodisias, a mid-sized um, city also in Asia Minor, but with very good archaeological and not least epigraphic evidence, mm -hmm. which makes it a very interesting case study. And then I looked at Jerash, so ancient Garasa in uh, northern Jordan, which is basically also a mid-sized city, uh, belonged to the Decapolis in the Roman period, which we do not really know what that principle meant. <laughs> um, but very rich archaeological site. And since two years, I've also been conducting an archaeological project together with a German colleague, um, Achim Lichtenberger in Bochum. And we are conducting a Danish-German project. They are looking particularly at urban development and settlement history. Cool. Yeah, yeah, politic developments and stuff like that. <laughs> Just have to interject a personal anecdote here. My parents went on a cruise of the Mediterranean for one of their wedding anniversaries, and Ephesus was one of their favorite cities. And to give the listeners back home, you know, a scale, they said that it was one of the most extensive archaeological sites they've ever been to. And they were telling me in amazement, only 10% of the site has been excavated. Their reaction was, oh, my goodness, that's so little. And my reaction was, oh, my gosh, that's so much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 10% is a lot of an ancient city to excavate. Yeah. I mean, for the medieval period, the only one I can think of that has a similar level is York in mm. the United Kingdom, which is maybe about 5%, mm. maybe a little bit more excavated. So four cities of Ephesus, Athens, Aphrodisias, and um, Gerasa. So what sort of trends are you seeing here in terms of aspects of... Well, let's go with what we talked about in the first segment, identity. Do these cities have specific ways of saying we are city so-and-so? Well, yes, but what really came out at the end of my research was, again, to, to come back to the individual's perspective, that mm -hmm. we really see in the cases where we do have the evidence that, that it's mostly individuals who shape urban landscapes. I mean, in the I case see. of Aphrodisias, for example, we have extremely good um, archaeological and, as I said, epigraphic evidence telling us about an imperial freedman who returns to Aphrodisias in the early imperial period mm -hmm. and basically builds up the town from scratch. 
So huh. he builds the theater, important leisure building in the city. He sponsors the parts of the North Agora, well, the big open public space of the city, and he sponsors the new Temple of Aphrodite. So the most important public cult of the city. So basically he sponsors all three spheres which a Roman city, which any Roman city with respect for themselves would have to have. And in that way creates um, an urban identity, but basically based on his richness. All three of those buildings are very public buildings. Mm. So I mean... This is mostly known from inscriptions? No, we have extensive archaeological evidence also, but yes, Ah. I mean, we know that it's him from inscriptions put on the buildings and from actually imperial correspondence, I mean, between the city and the emperor, where Augustus mentions him as his most favorite freedman. So the combination of this uh, very unique epigraphic evidence which was basically put up on a very dark wall on the way into the theater we have this so-called archive wall where very many public important documents and correspondence between the city and rome was engraved over centuries so my point here was i mean how these documents were put up in public but were basically unreadable to the passers-by but still it was important for the city to put them up somehow and to show how important they they were as a community, but still a community shaped on the basis of the individuals who had the means and the power to display themselves in, in public. But coming back to the local identities of these urban societies, people kept on asking me, well, why? Why do you choose Athens? Because Athens is so special. And my whole point was... Well, Athens is not more special than a lot of other places. It just had a different point of departure. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see whether it therefore behaved differently or whether the elite behaved differently in the Roman period than in other um, cities of the empire. And, well, the fact is, in some cases, they didn't. In some cases, they they didn't. And they very much brought to the forefront with their long cultural history and still played on that. But, for example, as I said before, they were never a provincial capital and never an important political city in that way because since they sided with the wrong people in the civil wars, I mean, Augustus really had a problem with with dealing with them and they had a problem with him. I mean, we have Pausanias telling us about the Athena statue on the Acropolis turning towards Rome and spitting blood in that direction. That's quite a strong (laughs) source, anti-Roman sentiment source. Definitely. I mean, when we have these historical sources well, combined with archaeological material, a different picture sort of um, emerges of, of how urban societies would would shape Definitely. themselves. And I think the experience of the individual in, in the life of the city is, is, is a very important one. The example that you, you mentioned earlier from Aphrodisius is a very salient one, and I cannot but think of Monty Python and the life of Brian, where there's the two graffiti artists trying to say <laughs> Romans go home, and the soldier ends up helping them say, <laughs> say it right way. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember the exact phrases because I saw it about a decade ago, but I mean, I think building up all of these structures and making it look like a Roman city from a freedman who's now very wealthy and has done very well for himself is... That's definitely one experience. Other people might not have had such a positive experience, although, I mean, they they did have a good point in that, you know, there were lots of aqueducts and roads and yeah. nice things that were built. Well, and I think one must not underestimate the 
impact of the Pax Romana, mm. uh, of the imperial peace. There was peace That's in right. the empire after centuries of wars. And this is, of course, partly also why we see this urban boom expansion in the late first and, and also second centuries AD. I mean, political stability is simply something that creates the basis for economic growth as well. That is uh, naturally channeled into the public sphere because this whole idea of euergotism of having to give something back to society mm -hmm. but not without getting something back yourself yes. I mean um, <laughs> was such a central concept to Roman society oh definitely um, one thing I, I also have to ask um, a question out of ignorance um, I know more about medieval cities than I do about <clears throat> Roman cities but How important were city walls? Mm -hmm. That's a good question, and, and um, it's also a, a complex question. I mean, we know of, of cities who have quite early city walls, so mm -hmm. even first century AD city walls, um, and even first century BC city walls. Now we are talking about only the Roman period and not the Hellenistic period sure, also. Sure, sure. And some of these walls are simply not defensive walls, yes. but they are, they are just you know walls to show off that you were a city, so a sign of urban culture. Mm -hmm. Whereas the later city walls, especially from the late 3rd and 4th centuries AD, are really defense walls, you know, like thick walls with towers, with big thick gates and all these things that you expect from a city wall that can hold up um, against attacks. Or so, so there are various reasons for having city walls or not. But then again, it also has to be said in a lot of cases, it's extremely difficult to date the city walls. There's, Absolutely. For example, a big <laughs> dispute going on in Gerash about whether the city walls actually date to the 2nd century or the 4th century AD or even the 6th century AD, depending on what period you're working in and want them to come from. And there's no conclusive answer to this. And yes, yes. So, so just to <laughs> oh, yeah, welcome no, no. with the explicit example of the difficulties also of, of dating these things. Well, it's very much true for the medieval period because in um, the most city walls that I know about, they're from high medieval England and mm -hmm. the period where we have the most murage grants, you know, grants from the king saying, okay, you can build these walls in your city, comes from periods like the m most prolonged peace mm. in England and city in a lot of cities that did not need defenses per se. But going back to the point you made about the earlier city walls, it was such a key aspect of urban life. I mean, city gates are obviously, you know, very important in terms of controlling tolls mm -hmm. from travelers coming in and out. But um, for the most part in the medieval period, city walls tended to be built in a very piecemeal fashion where, you know, part of the city would be walled, but not necessarily other parts of it. So the idea of the city that's completely encircled by walls may have been the case for a few. One example that comes to mind is um, a town in western Hungary called Sopron, which had, by I think the 15th century, three rings of walls, mm. which is very unusual. But most medieval cities tended, they really liked having walls, and you could obviously use them. They were very useful public spaces, mm. walls and city gates. But in terms of when and why they're being built, a lot of it in medieval England has to do with... Um, The, uh, I, you could make the argument, the image of the town, that this is what a town is supposed to look like. And there were really only a few in the southern shores of England that desperately needed city walls. At least that we can tell. No, I think a lot of research still needs to be undertaken on that concept. And I thought it's interesting with the medieval situation because I wonder that, I mean, in the antique and late antique period, we always 
view these things as monuments that are completely finished off. So like encircling the whole town. But you might want to wonder whether you encircle the whole town if yes. it's not necessary. And, well, and how long time it actually took to build these things. Definitely. It's a very so, expensive enterprise. Yeah. And, you know, the reason I brought up murage grants is towns would be granted them and it would take decades mm. to even get part to, of it done. And yeah. cities kept having to ask for a reapplication saying, well, we ran out of money and we only did like, you know, a quarter of what we wanted to. And so it's interesting seeing those examples in practice. So we've had a very good talk so far, and one of the things um, we've touched on a little bit that I want to hash out a little bit more is um, religious aspects. This is something that I think ties in both very well to aspects of individual identity and the individual within a city. So um, would you mind telling us a little bit about some of the work that you've done on issues of religion in the Roman Near East and late antique world? Yeah, well, recently I've been... um working on one of the churches in Gerash. I mean, not excavating there. It's been excavated in the 30s by Kreling and his team from Yale. The Church of St. Theodore, so the early martyr, St. Theodore, which was sponsored by a very early bishop in Gerash as well, the Bishop Aeneas um, in the late 5th century AD, so quite an early church. I mean, a real cathedral, I mean, three-aisle basilica with very elaborate decoration, glass mosaics, mosaics, and even some glass windows, and a very elaborate dedicatory inscription, which is very interesting. So an extremely monumental inscription placed in the atrium of the church, so not on the outside, but actually on the inside of the atrium, so facing the atrium before the narthex, four and a half meters long almost, and in several lines, and inscribed with letters that are five centimeters high, which makes you think about the readability of Mm these two people actually seeing the inscription. But the fact is that it's an extremely elaborate inscription which lets the church talk in the first person about what this space was used for before, namely did animals were lying around and stinking is the description, which leads us to think that the church is actually talking about eradicating an earlier pagan sanctuary. Um, Some people have had the theory about a slaughterhouse um, being... but, But I mean... Well, that goes well hand in hand with a pagan sanctuary because what took place there would would have been the animal sacrifices as well. And the church goes on to um, describe how everybody marvels when people pass this fantastic now ambrosial place. And not only Christians, but everybody. And goes on to say, well, the Christians raise their hand and make the sign of the cross. So actually, um, it differentiates, of course, between Christians and non-Christians, but it also includes all the non-Christians as having to marvel by Mm. this fantastic building, which is an interesting aspect. And in the last line, it says, but if you really want to know this well, and um, then it goes on to say it was the Bishop Aeneas, who's very devout, and so on and so forth, who actually dedicated me. And the last line is very interesting because uh, the line saying, well, if you want to know this really well, is actually a direct quotation from Homer's Iliad. And the sentence that would have followed upon that is even more interesting, and we must assume that Aeneas, the bishop, um, knew this line, goes on to say, well, if you want to know this very well, well, then I will tell you of my long lineage and my long history. So I think it's such a wonderful example, apart from the fact that the bishop is called Aeneas, I mean, yes. which is an extremely <laughs> Greek name very, in that way. Yes. <laughs> Him absolutely 
buying into and using his cultural heritage. So his completely Greco-Roman cultural heritage on display in his Christian building, in a church. Mm -hmm. So there's no discrepancy between his cultural or no conflict between his cultural heritage and his religious identity. Rather, he actually uses his cultural heritage to position himself as an extremely strong individual within Gerasene society. So he even positions himself as better than the rest, even better than the rest of the Christians as a, well, you might use an Augustan term like primus inter pares, he's the best of equals, mm -hmm. because he knows Greek and he knows the right sort of Greek and yes. he knows how to phrase it and put it in public. Well, I think that's a very interesting example because, of course, there's been a lot of focus and rightly in scholarship on conflicts between Jewish, pagan and Christian groups. Mm -hmm. But we really need to try to get at the nuances of these conflicts or lack of mm -hmm. conflicts because there are absolutely also situations where competition is done within the cultural koine of the Greco-Roman world. So it's more about display of knowledge and not necessarily religious knowledge, but really cultural yes. and societal knowledge. And that helps individuals to shape their religious identity in a specific setting as well. So that's one of the issues that I have been working on. And what's interesting about Gerash is that we have a lot of churches stemming from the late 5th century into the early 7th century, alongside with a very prominently situated synagogue, basically on almost the highest point of the city, hmm. close to St. Theodore, which is only converted into a church in the early 6th century. And alongside that, we have epigraphic evidence telling us of strong-going pagan cults in the 6th century also. So, I mean, we do have evidence for this multi-religious society still going strong in this late period. Mm -hmm. So people having to somehow deal with this reality one way or the other. There was a conference here at Central European University a couple of months back. I'm thinking of the Pagans and Christians mm -hmm. conference that... Mm -hmm. There were a lot of papers um, there specifically trying to target this issue because um, for definitely in the medieval period, a lot is made about, um, especially starting from the 12th century onward, about the conflicts between Jews, Christians, Muslims, pagans, all living together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how can it be done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then there are obviously cases where there's perhaps not tolerance, but cohabitation. The example of Spain comes to mind, mm -hmm. uh, and if Gerash is in Jordan, and if we're getting that such a survival into the early 6th century, which is quite late, I think that's very interesting. Mm. Well, it is very interesting, and it forces us to think about other levels of society where I see the family as a very important unit, not only in this period, but also in earlier periods, because we have to imagine and we know, I mean, we know of this not from Gerash, but from other places in the Roman world, that parts of a family would become Christian. Somebody yes. would opt for something else. So they would fall back into paganism. And that said, paganism is such a bad word, isn't yes. it? Because it's really such a Christian coined term. I mean, not of us. So actually using the word pagan just makes us view the whole thing from the wrong side yes. because Christianity emerged out of these societies exactly in this region where Gerash is located, basically. So we have to imagine Christianity emerging out of this and probably within family units somehow. And that is why I think 
cohabitation is a good word to use because to a large extent that is what we have to be looking at. I mean, we're not looking at families being split at this early point. People were working with various options. Who really knew at this point that Christianity was going to be the religion that was going to survive well, I mean, on a worldwide it, basis? Definitely. And the family <clears throat> issue is important. I mean, one example that comes to mind is um, St. Paula and her daughter St. Eustochium were Christians, but Paula's son was raised as a pagan because I think Paula's husband was pagan. And Paul and Eustochium are the two saints who corresponded very heavily with St. Jerome, mm. who is in the fourth century is very, very prominent theologian who makes use of a lot of pagan scholarship. He has mm. a dream where he's going to his martyrdom and the Jez says, you are not a Christian, you are a Ciceronian. That happens in his, in, in his dream and he sees a conflict with that. The other thing that I just have to, I have to get this off because it bothers me. Every so often be talking about the Middle Ages with someone who's not a specialist. And and people have their ideas about the antique world, about the Middle Ages, about the pre-modern world. And one of the most shocking things that I think I've ever heard was a comment to the effect of, oh, well, there weren't families back then. Not necessarily word for word, but that was the gist of what was said, was that people had no concept of what a family was in the Roman time or in the medieval time or any time before, essentially, the 18th, 19th century. And for me, it was just such a bizarre statement uh, to make. Their rationale behind it was that, oh, well, children died more than, so people weren't attached to children dying because it was much more of a fact of life. And... In and of itself, yes, the infant mortality was a much greater concern, but reading letters of grieving mm. parents or epigraphic evidence of yeah. tombstones from the Roman world, it's its very, very heartbreaking, you know, mm. reading a tombstone. There was one from Croatia where the mother was like, her son died in an accident. She's like, I have, I have already buried three daughters, and mm. now I have to bury my son who is, you know, my light, my treasure, and all these sorts of things. And so family may have meant a different thing and you may have had a mother and a father living with their children or four generations living in one house or there may have been many different setups but I think the family is sort of something that I think is taken for granted. Well I think it's not only taken for granted I think you were basically nothing without a family <laughs> also in the Roman period because it was the family who secured your survival. And we have plenty of epigraphic evidence talking about that. I'm currently conducting another project that is about portrait culture in the Near East and looking at all the funerary sculpture from Palmyra, the desert city oh, yes. in, uh -huh. in Syria. And it's extremely interesting epigraphic evidence. We have more than 2,000 of these funerary portraits and the corpus has never been made. And that's what we are doing in research group, which I'm heading. And these inscriptions are extremely uniform and just uses formulas, but they quote families back in fifth generation on many, many of these funerary portraits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that is one extremely important signifier throughout the Roman period or the late third century AD, in this case, until Palmyra was sacked and we don't have any more sculpture from there after that period or not the funerary sculpture at least. Mm -hmm. 
an extremely important signifier to, to signify that your family had a long history, that you had a family, that it was an important family, and so on and so forth. And as you mentioned with the epitaphs, I mean, it's um, this is not what we see in the evidence. We see that family is very important. Yes. And, okay, we might want to discuss whether the concept of core family, whether we can transfer that on the Roman family, but definitely there was the concept of the familia. I mean, that's, uh, there's no doubt about that. Absolutely. Um, so, of course they did. And whether they emotionally cared less when their children died, I'm not so sure that we can conclude that they didn't because obviously the evidence also tells us that, that they did. Yes, um, and it's an interesting concept. And I think that the other important thing that... Um, one of the very few things I know about Roman society is that a lot of these funerary inscriptions and epitaphs and things were ordered by family members after the death. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of cases it was wives or widows or um, I think the fact that they're er erecting these memorials for the deceased, engaging the viewer. Mm -hmm is very, very important. Yeah, and you have to think about the fact that a lot of these things were extremely public monuments uh, situated along main roads mm -hmm. into the towns where the deceased had been a citizen. So, mm -hmm. I mean, these are very... Of course, there's the aspect of self-representation again and what that means, but it was important to put these up yes. in public, stating your relation with the deceased and the deceased status in local society in general. Yes, definitely. Family well, yeah. should not be underestimated. And for that matter, grave monuments as well. I mean, nowadays death is very separated. In the 19th century, people would go for their walk in the local cemetery because it was nice and green. We don't see a lot of that nowadays, but grave monuments were very public and a lot of people would have seen them. Well, we've had a very good show today, I must say, and a very, very engaging talk. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you before uh, we end the show is what sort of current projects are you working on? Well, right now I have a couple of projects that takes up most of my time. I'm heading um, a larger research project on portrait culture mm -hmm. in um, Palmyra in Syria, funded by the Carlsberg Foundation, and have some postdocs and very good doctorate students working with me on creating a corpus and also creating text volumes relating to this portraiture, which spans from the period from the first century AD to the late third century AD. And we are looking at contextualizing that within the Roman Empire. It's really the largest corpus of portrait sculpture outside of Rome itself. I see. And portrait sculpture is something, of course, that tells us about local identity and how local societies would deal with being part of the Roman Empire. The very interesting thing about Palmyrene sculpture is that these funerary sculptures actually came into existence in a region that had no earlier portrait culture, really, and that makes them even more interesting to look at. So that's... Um, that's one project, and well, then I'm heading together with my German colleague Achim Lichtenberger an archaeological project in Gerasch, mm -hmm. which is going on, and we are soon going for the summer campaign again. So that is uh, very nice, finally, to be able to be in the field again and getting some, some <laughs> dirt under your nails and really being reminded about that these conclusions, they come from something, and mm. working with uh, fresh archaeological yes. material is not uncomplicated, but it really brings a lot as well. And then I'm hoping soon to start up a project on trans-religious worship in the Eastern Mediterranean, so covering 
a long period of time, basically from the 8th century BC to 9th century AD, mm -hmm. together with three other uh, colleagues and some research groups in total based at, at four different universities, whereas one of the colleagues from CEU would be partner in this project. But that remains to be seen whether we really get all the funding that we are hoping for for that project. Uh, well, yes. I certainly <laughs> hope you do. <laughs> and... Um, before we go, I mean, we, you've mentioned um, a book that a lot of our interview is based off of. Would you mind telling the listeners the title of it? Yeah, the title of the book is Urban Development and Regional Identity in the Eastern Roman Provinces. And then it has a long subtitle, but it basically <laughs> covers the period from 50 BC to 250 AD. And it was published by Copenhagen University Press last year. Fantastic. So for the listeners back home, if you want more, definitely be sure to check it out. Um, I'm afraid we're out of time today, but thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure for us as well. And for the listeners back home, um, be sure to listen to us on the web at www.medievalradio.org. Be sure to send us an email to medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well and join us in our One Million Medievalist campaign. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.